Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics Part 3 Action Adventure Hello and welcome to the third part of the podcast miniseries 80 Years of DC Comics presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. I'm your host Tom Panneries, and the purpose of these 12 episodes is to showcase comic books and comic book genres that DC has produced in its 80-year history, but are not as recognizable or celebrated as their superhero or stories that are not as widely celebrated as what usually winds up on a top 10 list. Last time around, Stella and I tackled romance. This time around, I'm going solo with a look at a few stories that I guess you could say fall within the realm of the action-adventure genre. DC has a long history of comics that feature adventure stories going all the way back to the company's very first years. Adventure Comics, the book that would go on to feature a variety of superheroes including Green Arrow, Aquaman, Superboy, Supergirl, The Legion of Superheroes, Black Orchid, and The Spectre predates its more successful sister publication, Action Comics, by three years. It debuted as New Comics number 1 in 1935, eventually becoming New Adventure Comics in 1937. The New would be dropped from the title in 1938, but by then the idea of adventurers in the comics pages was well established with early characters such as Henri Duval of France, famed soldier of fortune who was an early Siegel and Schuster character, Bob Merritt and his flying pals, and cop stories like Federal Men and Radio Squad. Despite its name, Adventure Comics wasn't the only comic book to feature adventurers, swashbucklers, and spies, and as I said, it too featured the regular adventures of costumed superheroes. A look through DC's history via Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics and the Les Daniels book, DC Comics 60 Years of the World's Favorite Comic Book Heroes, shows that a number of titles would have those stories either on their cover or as backups throughout most of the country's publication history. This time around, I actually have five stories. Last time, Stella and I did only one romance book because there were four stories, and to be honest, it seemed like with romance comics, if you read one of them, you kind of had already read all of them. But action-adventure is a pretty vague label for a genre, so I thought I'd gather a smattering of stuff that is a hodgepodge of different action-adventure stories. First is The Adventures of Steve Conrad, an adventure strip that was written and illustrated by Krieg Flessel and ran in New Adventure Comics. I've grabbed the strip from New Adventure Comics number 15, which according to Mike's Amazing World, came out on April 27, 1937, and was cover dated May 1937. When we open, Steve has escaped from the Dolorosa Isle and is heading home on a schooner as they anchor for the night. A mysterious man rises from the ocean and murders the first mate on a ship and takes over, wondering where the captain is, but decides not to worry because he's the captain now. 
Below deck, a crew member wakes up the captain, and when the man goes up the deck to see what's going on, he gets a knife in the back and then is lashed to the ship's wheel, while the bad guy says that he'll get Steve Conrad too. He climbs the mast and grabs one of the ropes and swings down, kicking Steve Conrad in the back of the head and sending him overboard. As he goes overboard, Conrad grabs the leg of the villain and takes him with him. They tussle underwater, and Steve refuses to let him drown, rescuing him and keeping him afloat while he calls for help. Three crew members row the lifeboat from the schooner out to get Steve, but the current seems too strong. Steve knows that he could swim to the boat, but the current is too strong for both of them, and he won't let this guy down. As the boat gets closer, Myra, one of the crew members, jumps towards Steve with a rope tied around her waist while Steve yells about how she's a fool and they'll drown. And we're to be continued. Now, I'll have to admit that I grabbed this at random while searching for a readily accessible early adventure story, and I'd like to thank Comic Book Plus, which has a couple of hundred comic books that are in the public domain available for download from its website. I'm not really familiar with many of the characters that DC was publishing before Superman, and really haven't read any of these stories before, so this was a bit of an experiment. It was kind of a treat. The story's pretty good. I know that it was in the middle of whatever serial strip was running, but I knew enough to figure out that Steve Conrad was our hero. After all, Steve Conrad is a really great name for an action-adventure hero. And that there was some treachery on the high seas going on here. Art-wise, it's pretty good as well, especially compared to some of the other artwork in that comic book, which was not horrible. But there were a couple of stories in that Adventure Comics issue that I flipped through that looked like they were probably drawn, they could have been drawn better, probably were rushed. Comics production in those days was very seat of their pants at times, and really many, from, from what I've seen, quite a number of stories suffer from that. But this, this is a nice short little piece that despite its age is dynamic and really shows why these stories were so popular for so long, even if that popularity was eventually eclipsed by superheroes. It is a great place to start as well. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'm going to have two stories from the 1950s. I have called you all here today at the behest of Don DiManzo to discuss the expansion of our Jersey territory. Our Don has seen an opportunity to move into Atlantic City at an event called AC Boardwalk Con, which will be happening May 14th through the 17th, 2015. Don DiManzo has asked that some of our made men attend this convention and convince the locals to try two true freaks. Joining me, Gene Hendricks, on this trip will be my Quantum Cast cohort, Jeff Fishman. Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, will be representing the Boston arm of the family, while Scott McGregor will be representing the New York branch. Our capo, Chris Honeywell, will also be there to provide some added... persuasion. Your Don has asked that any of his loyal friends in the area come and pay their respects to this new endeavor. He reminds you that all the information on the event can be found at doacbc.com. That's doacbc.com. Come help us make Atlantic City 
an offer they can't refuse. I've got two stories here from the same decade, the 1950s. Both are taken from the greatest 1950s stories ever told collection that was released by DC in 1990. The first one is Johnny Peril, Queen of the Snows, from Sensation Comics number 107, which was cover dated January, February 1952 and came out on November 9th, 1951. The story was by Robert Kaniger, penciled by Alex Toth, and inked by Cy Berry. We open with a single panel that features three people trapped in an avalanche on a mountain, falling to their deaths and screaming, while the eyes of a red-skinned woman stares at them and laughs. This is Johnny Peril, our copy says. The story I'm going to tell you is a strange one. You don't have to believe it if you don't want to. In fact, it would be better if you didn't, because there'd be no choice of your finding roses on an ice-capped mountain and meeting the Queen of the Snows. We flash back to when Johnny met Lee Allen, whom he traveled more than 7,000 miles to see on the eastern slope of Mount Subara. Lee doesn't seem to recognize Johnny when they pass one another at first, and when Johnny confronts him, Lee says that he saw Subara himself and that she's beautiful with her crown of roses. Johnny says he doesn't know what he's talking about, and then Lee falls over. Johnny carries him down the side of the mountain while Lee rambles on about Subara, and as they break through a raging wind, he hears a cry of rage. Lee says it's Subara, and Johnny claims it must be the wind. He reaches base camp, hoping to get some medical attention. It turns out, well, Lee is already dead. The natives at the base camp tell him that Lee died because he dared scare the mountain that Subara lives on. Johnny is skeptical, but the native says that Subara, the Ice Queen, lives on the mountain that bears her name. She is the most beautiful woman in the world and the most deadly for all who see her die. Hmm. Ice Queen living in isolation, people afraid of her. I've seen this movie recently. Anyway, Johnny still thinks this is a superstitious nonsense and insists that they break camp at dawn. He thinks to himself that the natives are good people, but superstitious and a bit backwards. When they get ready to break camp the next day, there's an avalanche. Johnny digs himself out and not everyone survives. In fact, their bodies are gone. The natives claim that Sabara took them, but Johnny says he is going to dig for the bodies until they find them. They dig for the whole day and find nothing. The natives still claim it's Subara, and Johnny still thinks this is crazy, but as they start up the mountain, he seems to be slammed with... something? Superstition, Subara, all sorts of things. The natives take him back down the mountain for his own safety. Two weeks later, they make it to the coast, and Johnny is contacting Lee's parents when he runs into Bill Davis and Jack Gordon, both airline pilots flying clippers around the world and who were on vacation. They take Johnny out to lunch, and he tells him about this time in the mountain and this legend of Subara. They think he's crazy. And then he says he's going to back and he's going to go climb that mountain. They think he's even crazier. But they say if he's going to do this, 
they're going with him. The natives refuse to go back with him, but they eventually reach the mountain. Johnny says that they'll start for the top of the mountain in the morning, but when he wakes up, he sees a note from Bill and Jack that he looked tired and they didn't want to wake him up, so they started without him. Johnny takes off at the side of the mountain in search of them because he's worried about them, and they lack experience. He catches up with Bill at a ditch in the mountain, and Bill tells Johnny not to jump the ditch, but Johnny does anyway. After he makes it across, a cold, icy mist swirls around him. It lifts for a moment, and he hears taunting laughter and sees the ghost of Subara. She disappears almost immediately, but he hears her laugh and realizes that the legend is that she will try to lure him to his death. That's what, he, that's what she starts to do, too, luring him with her eyes like a siren and trying to push him into a crevasse. As he pushes, she pushes him back, he seizes her arm and she falls into the crevasse instead. Johnny reaches the bottom of the mountain and sees Bill. He tells her that he saw Subara, and Bill questions that what he's talking about until Johnny says, Proof, Bill? Is this proof enough? And holds out the wreath of roses that Subara was wearing. Now, I don't have access to the original printing of the story because what I was reading was a recolored reprint, but I will say that the recoloring really works. I'm not that much of a fan of Alex Toth's artwork to begin with, but I really do like it here. And much like the Steve Conrad story, I thought this was a classic sort of adventure story. Kaniger gives us all the right elements, a risky task in climbing a tough mountain, a ghost story, a superstitious group of natives, and a hero who thinks that all of this is complete hogwash and will go up the mountain despite its, wait for it, peril. It's an eight-page story, and Kaniger and Toth cram quite a bit into those eight pages, doing their best to make it as tight as possible. Now, I'm not exactly sure how Johnny Peril grabbed what seemed like a ghost when he confronted her on the mountain, and there are times when the natives seems like they're drawn in the vein of bad Asian stereotypes. Granted, it's not as bad as, say, some of the depictions of Asians in comics from the 1930s and 1940s, but the way Johnny dismisses them as stupid natives is pretty close. Then again, he's probably got a bit of hubris about him in the way that quite a number of risk-taking adventure heroes tend to do. And he is so much a very just archetypical adventurer. Blonde-haired, classic face, the type of guy who is a professional at this and never has to worry about the problems of everyday life. Johnny Peril is almost made for stories that are eight pages long, and he's a direct descendant of heroes like, well, Steve Conrad. Another type of hero that began to emerge in the as the 1950s went on was the International Spy. The Cold War was at its height, and espionage was a huge part of that, with the United States and the Soviet Union playing spy games all over the globe. One of the major characters of popular culture debuted in April 1953, and that was Ian Fleming's James Bond with the novel Casino Royale. That The story that I'm going to talk about predates James Bond by actually a few weeks, debuting in World's Finest Comics number 64, which was released on March 25th, 1953, and had a May-June 1953 cover date. It's, it is King Faraday and Spy Train, which was written by Robert Kaniger again, penciled by Carmine Infantino, and inked by Cy Berry as well. The first page shows King Faraday getting knocked out of a moving train car on board the Orient Express by a man wearing a beret and holding a gun. He narrates... I had a round-trip ticket on the Orient Express, leaving Paris for Istanbul, but it seemed doubtful that I'd ever remain alive to use the return half. The killer I was hunting for intended to make sure of that. I hadn't the faintest idea who he was, while well, he had me tagged for death from the first moment I boarded the train. 
Faraday has met up with Johnny Lester of Counterintelligence, who is happy to see that he's getting a little much-needed vacation. But before he does that, Faraday has to catch a spy, someone who's become very dangerous to the U.S. because of his secrets he stole. As they are talking, we see a man wearing a beret, a red scarf, and a villain's mustache getting on the train. Lester gives King Faraday the backstory. They were on the Rue de Seine, investigating a phone call that he'd received. But by the time he got to the address, the caller was dead, and it seems that the caller was a scientific genius working on something that would make a hydrogen bomb more powerful. And somewhere in the city is a spy with that secret. Lester takes some evidence to investigate and finds Spirit writing on a notepad that tells him whomever killed this caller was going to be on the Orient Express, which was leaving at 3.30. As Faraday is about to get on the train, he sees Vina Flora, a Hollywood starlet, who hugs him, a picture that is snapped by a photographer, and as he gets on the train, he has a, he gets a note that says, two of us boarded this train, but the only one who will leave it alive is the man you are seeking. Faraday heads to the observation platform, and while he's watching the scenery, he gets attacked from behind. He almost meets his death, but then gets the upper hand and sends the villain tumbling onto the tracks. As Faraday gets back to his feet, he runs once again into the photographer from earlier. The train stops in Dijon, and Lester gets in touch with Faraday to tell him that the man he killed was a hired killer, and the real man thereafter is still on board. He rushes to get back on the train and runs back into the photographer. He then walks around the train and wonders who the heck this guy could be. While in the corridor of the train, they round a sudden curve and the comely female from earlier falls into his arms again. He kisses Vina, and after the train goes through a tunnel, the lights suddenly go out and Faraday sees the flash of a knife. It's from a porter who's trying to kill him. He fights back and the killer winds up falling on his own knife. Once again, the photographer is there. He follows Faraday and Vina out onto the observation deck and takes a picture of them kissing. The train moves on through more countries and Faraday wonders where the heck or who the heck this person is. At the last stop, just before the Turkish border, as Faraday passes through a quarter, the lights go out momentarily and he feels someone stumble hard into him. It's the photographer, whose name is Mr. Davis, and he says something about being blind in the dark. But then Faraday recalls a conversation earlier about Davis having said that he saw something that had happened in the dark. It's then that Faraday deduces that Davis is the man he's looking for. The train's guards stop Davis and want his camera. Faraday realizes that this guard is obviously Davis's contact, and he punches the guard. The fight goes to the roof of the train, where Faraday, Davis, and another guard have a shootout, and Faraday gets both of them. It ends with Faraday arriving at Istanbul with Vina, having gotten his man and gotten the girl. You know, the biggest criticism I have of the story is that the identity of the villain is pretty much revealed on the first page, and it's pretty obvious throughout. Even if we didn't have that splash of Mr. Davis hitting Faraday, he is in way too many panels and just happens to be there way too many times for it to be a surprise that he was the villain. This would have been a little better than uh, if there had been a more, maybe just a little more subtlety. Plus, the actress that Faraday ends up with literally just falls into his arms. Then again, well, James Bond didn't exactly date people. Aside from that, the story has a From Russia with Love feel to it, even though it predates that book. This also predates Showcase Number 4 by about three years, which is quite possibly one of the most famous books that Carmine Infantino ever worked on. The dynamism that Carmine Infantino brought to The Flash is apparent here in the fights that Faraday has with various villains on the observation deck and in corridors, as well as on the roof of the train. I honestly wish this would have lasted longer, even though this was only a 12-page story and there's only so much that you can fit into a 12-page story. Kaniger's script is very straightforward, which is what he needed to do with this small amount of space to work with. 
Faraday is given a mission. There's a guy to catch, and he's encountered several bad guys along the way until he finally gets the guy he needs. Much of the script is done through narration boxes and has a tendency to be very text-heavy, and it's possible that Kaniger could have developed a villain a little bit more. But like I said, because it's a little too obvious who the guy Faraday needed to catch was. And if he had developed a villain a little more and kind of not telegraphed it, it would have been a little bit more of a cat-and-mouse game, which would have been a little bit more interesting. But... I'm nitpicking. It's a good story. And it's a story that was also written for kids in a decade that, well, the 50s don't accept. I think the only decade that gets less respect than the 50s sometimes could be the 90s, if you really want to be honest. The 50s is a little bit overlooked as well, or, or has kind of a not-so-great reputation in comics. But if I think I were, if I were an 8-, 9-year-old boy in the 1950s, basically my father, I would have really liked this. I would have read this over and over again, especially since it's not only very dynamic in its look and feel, but it's also modern for its time. I mean, we're in the Cold War now, and Adventure on the High Seas still did show up from time to time. Spies were becoming more in vogue, and as the 50s would become the 60s, they would become incredibly popular. King Faraday is a character who first appeared in the 1950 comic Danger Trail, He'd be eventually incorporated into the proper DC universe. And he would be part of the CBI, which is basically one of the DC's major, major spy agencies. After the crisis on Infinite Earths, he was you know, used to a pretty good extent in Suicide Squad, Checkmate, and other espionage titles that involved heroes, but weren't exactly exclusively superhero comics. He is currently being used as a character, at least as, as of this recording, in the Futures End Weekly series. I'm going to skip ahead a few decades with my next story, but before that I'm going to take a break, so I'll be right back. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tamara. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Ariane. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. Now, I wasn't actually going to do this next story because I didn't remember I had it until I sat down to write the synopses for all the other stories in this episode. And I realized this actually would be a great piece um, because it's from one of the first comics I ever owned. 
I've always said that comic number one in my comic book collection is Superman the Secret Years number two. And that's true, or at least it was the first comic I remember buying at the comic store and holding on to. But at some point a few years into my comic collecting career, my family was cleaning out our attic and getting stuff ready to sell and donate. And one of the things we were cleaning out was their old luggage set. It was one of those old American tourister uh, sets where it was like the, the luggage was like that really, really hard material, that hard plastic as opposed to what I have in my basement, which is very foldable and flexible. Anyway, while I was cleaning, which I guess was the toiletries bag, but it was the small, small suitcase that I used to take with me when I would stay overnight at my grandmother. Like, I put my teddy bear and some stuff in there. Inside that bag was a copy of The Brave and the Bold, number 182. So, this may be my first comic. I love this comic. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite comic books of all time. Not for the story I'm about to talk about, however. The main story in the comic is a team-up between the Batman and Robin of Earth 2. The backup story, however, stars Nemesis, the vigilante-turned-operative for the United States government who is a master of disguise. Or, well, let me write it how it's done on the first page of the story. The scales of justice held in perfect balance. They symbolize a fair and impartial judgment between men. But unbalanced truth and equality are mocked. One man risks his life to restore that balance. A man called Nemesis. Our story is Enter Gray Fox. And as mentioned, it was the backup story to The Brave and the Bold number 182, which is covered dated January 1982, but came out on October 22nd, 1981. Carrie Burkett is our creator writer dan spiegel is our artist costanza is the letterer carl gafford colorist dick giordano is the editor practice makes perfect or so it is claim and in nemesis line of endeavor his life often depends on his skills in a variety of areas so it is not unusual that he should cultivate these souls at every opportunity Nemesis is at a shooting range with his friend Val, and he's giving her all sorts of pointers and mansplaining at her how to shoot a gun while she stands nearly spread eagle in a position that is more conducive to relieving herself than firing a pistol. He continues to lecture her about marksmanship, and she's getting better. While this lesson continues, some of Nemesis's enemies are meeting to discuss how to get rid of him. One of them, Mr. Maddox, is visibly upset that he and his council of goons are getting picked off one by one. As he talks and chews on his cigar, someone shoots the cigar out of his mouth. It's Gray Fox, the assassin that they are hiring to take out Nemesis. Gray Fox determines that finding Val might be the key to getting a Nemesis, and based on the intelligence that they've gathered, a couple of toughs knock on the door to Val's brother Chris, demanding that they know where she is. After they leave, he calls her in a panic, not realizing that his phone is tapped. Gray Fox, of course, is behind the tapping, and it leads him to New York. Nemesis thinks that something is up, so he dons the disguise of a beggar at Kennedy Airport and watches as Gray Fox follows Chris into a taxi. Gray Fox gets into another cab and does the whole, follow that cab thing. But Nemesis uses his blind man's cane, which doubles as a gun, to shoot out the tire. Gray Fox, however, sees through the disguise, realizes that the old beggar is Nemesis, and he starts shooting. Nemesis adjusts his cane weapon and gasses Gray Fox, then changes his disguise on the run and leaves, although Gray Fox knows he'll eventually find him. This is 
You know, in the 30 plus years I've been in this comic, I actually think this is the first time I've ever read this story. <laughs> I, I probably did read it before when I was younger, but if I read it, I really didn't remember it. It's not horrible. It's not great. It's just not very memorable. I suppose that Nemesis is supposed to be some sort of super agent or something and a master disguise, but the whole thing at the end where he literally changes the disguise on the fly because he pulls off one mask to reveal another and then winds up turning his jacket inside out is a little too much. Because there's no indication in the story that Grayfix knows what Nemesis looks like, so if Nemesis had thrown off his disguise and disappeared into the crowd, Grayfox wouldn't have known who he was. Plus, I know I'm coming into the middle of this and all, and I'm not sure who Val is, what these people want with her, why she's so bow-legged when she shoots a gun on the firing range. I, I just don't. I'll give Dan Spiegel some credit here, though. The art is very nice in several parts, even if it kind of looks like it belongs in a commercial from a decade earlier, and the characters' clothing and some of the settings are just dripping with the tackiness of the late 70s and early 1980s. But the confrontation at the airport is well-drawn and paced well, still... Out of everything I read for this episode, this has to be the weakest story. I'm sure that there are a few Nemesis fans who might disagree. And if you are, please email me because I'm really curious. Um, but unfortunately, it's a skippable story. A series, by the way, that I've deliberately skipped up until this point when I brought, bought this comic at my LCS about a week or two ago is Grayson. This is a comic that came out of that came out as a result of the events of Forever Evil, where Dick Grayson, aka Nightwing's death and revival, happened, but the latter was ultimately kept a secret and he became some sort of international spy. I wanted to find a recent comic to show how action adventure is still being published all these years later, and this is the most recent example, as it is part of the New Fifty Two. Grayson number six, The Brains of the Operation, was written by Tim Seeley from a plot by Tim Seeley and Tom King. The artist is Michael Janine, the colorist is Jeremy Cox, the letter is Carlos M. Mangual, covers by Janine, and there's a Flash 75th Anniversary variant cover by Jock. The assistant editor is Matt Humphreys, your editor is Mark Doyle. I have the main cover, it's just a shot of Dick Grayson charging at the hero known as Midnighter. Um, shot from below with a spiral pattern meeting in the middle of the cover. Our story opens on on Gadgeto Island in the Yellow Sea. Dick Grayson and Helena Bertinelli, agents of Spiral, are on the island and tracking an organization known as AWOL, which is a collection of deserters from various criminal organizations pulling heists for personal gain. Apparently, they're using an Asian supermax prison as a base of operations, and the two of them are about to discuss this when they are attacked by some sort of crazy mutant killer whale with legs. They manage to avoid it and send it over a cliff to the sea below. Moments later, they come upon the prison and are met by a pile of dead bodies. They begin exploring, trying to figure out what something or someone called the brain is or does. While they are putting down a few remaining hostiles, Midnighter recognizes Grayson. Helena calls into headquarters and lets them know that the piece of whatever they are looking for was stolen by a third party. Headquarters tells her to keep them informed and Dick finds one of the remaining live people. Helena begins a hypno hypnose interrogation while back at headquarters Mr. Minos, the, the director of Spiral, converses with Spider who reprimands him for taking his current mission too personally. Back on the island, Helena is interrogating the bad guy who calls himself Macabre, and Dick is keeping guard. 
Just then, Midnighter takes him through a, quote, door, and they begin fighting. During the course of their fighting, Midnighter reveals that he was also after what they're calling the Paragon Brain, but he's working for someone else, and he wants it out of the hands of Spiral. They fight some more. Midnighter chides him for having ditched the Nightwing outfit, saying he knows Nightwing as well as Nightwing does. Dick says, do you know Robin, and then finally gets the upper hand. Dick tries to get the hypno-interrogation started, but Midnighter has to has tech that causes it to backfire. Helena uncovers what an organization called the Fist of Cain intends to do with the brain thereafter, and that's to use it as a, at a peace rally in Tel Aviv because the device can be used to cause people to tear each other apart in hatred. Meanwhile, Dick gets the upper hand on Midnighter just after he knocks them out. He is approached by an old Asian woman who tells him to walk with him to the garden. She explains that Midnighter is with her and apologizes for him being so temperamental. Then she talks a little bit more about what the fir- what the fist of Cain intends to do with the Paragon brain, and after he shouts that he has to get to Israel, she says no, he has to stay with her in the garden, and it's revealed that Dick is no longer on Earth, but on a giant structure that is currently in orbit. Now, like I said, I was deliberately avoiding Grayson. It's not because of what happened to Nightwing. I actually dropped that book several months before any of the events that led to the Grayson comic book actually took place. I just wasn't interested in this anymore. Much like the Nemesis story, it wasn't too bad. I mean, I was obviously coming at a midpoint of something, and the last panel was supposed to be some big reveal, but it took me a while to piece together what I come into. But and for two ninety nine, I honestly was not really blown away. The issue is written with the same sort of humor and witty banter that you probably expect from Dick Grayson, and the plot involves our two heroes chasing something around to different places on the map so they can stop some sort of big disaster from happening. Midnighter, yes, is a costume hero, so this kind of goes against my non-superhero mandate for these episodes, but it all kind of skirts the line here and sticks to the spy game more than the superhero game. And I think that it's laid on pretty thick. The spiral agents all wear devices that make their faces seem twisted and unrecognizable to everyone, which is actually a pretty cool idea. But we don't know who the director is because the director keeps it on. And when we see the director, we see the weird non-face thing. And it's like, ooh, he's mysterious. So we have an agency with mysterious higher-ups and a possible hidden agenda. We have the Fist of Cain, which seems like some sort of brutish cultish organization. And we have a conspiracy over what I can only guess is a super weapon that goes beyond what any of our heroes can imagine. Kind of had wished if they were talking about the brain that the brain and Monsieur Mala would pop up or something, but I guess we weren't going to go there. All in all, the the idea behind the plot is not bad. I mean, there are points where I felt like a bit a little bit like I was being hit over the head with all the spy agency names and mission stuff when I really just wanted to see the fight advertised in the cover. But the fight, it's, it's all pretty decent. The fight's pretty good too. I mean. I don't know if we needed another fight scene in a comic where two people talk at one another while trading blows, you know, like, and give us all the exposition while they're fighting with each other. Because, you know, we need to move the plot along. It actually made me wish that, like, Chuck Dixon was writing the title because I think that would be really, really good. Um, Dixon always had such a good handle on Dick Grayson. He writes action so well that I, I think he would be able to do great things with Grayson, international man of action spy thriller you know like ceiling can do a serviceable job but i don't know i was left wishing wishing for more but not in a way that made me want to buy more if you know what i mean
The artwork's very good. It's definitely of the current DC house style, but Mike Janine uh, knows how to draw action. He does a very good job at keeping everything well-paced. I'll be curious as to how this series uh, and this character fares post-convergence. I won't necessarily be following it, however. Um, if you want a really, really good spy comic out there, go buy Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting's Velvet over at Image. Uh, it's a much more fulfilling ride, to be honest with you. As for DC and their adventure series, uh, it's this, this is a genre that's still hanging out there. It still has plenty of potential. Uh, perhaps Vertigo will cultivate some more stories involving, I don't know, pirates or washbucklers or spies. Um, or DC will add a little more variety to their mainstream titles after you know event number you know, 20 million in the, in the last five years. Because this has actually been a very, very important part of their history since the beginning. And they're keeping it alive, but I'd hate to see it really, really fade out. Because it, this was really fun to read. These, these were fun comics to read. Next time on the podcast, I'm going to break from my other genres mandate. I'm actually going to go back to superheroes uh, for a moment. I'll be covering an issue of Legends of the DC Universe featuring the new Teen Titans. It's part of a huge Legends of the DC Universe crossover with the Lantern cast that will be taking place in April of 2015. This means that I'm expanding the podcast miniseries by an episode. Um, It'll all still into 2014. I'm just going to double up at one point in the summer or, or toward the end of the year. So come back for that Legends of the DC Universe in a few weeks. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics. Thank you.